Welcome everyone to Potholes and Politics, local main issues from A to Z. I'm your co-host, Rebecca Graham. And I am Rebecca Lambert. Uh, before we dive into the legislative bulletin, I gotta tell you, I had uh, this really cool thing happen this week. We received some fan mail from a reader of our legislative bulletin with regard to our coverage on LD422, which was an act to provide municipalities an alternate method of publishing their public notice, removing the requirements in statutory language that force them to use generally circulated newspapers that are dwindling in their readership. Um, so receiving a handwritten notice on the day of the work session was just so ironically poignant, even though that was voted out of a committee with a split decision, because it just shows the effectiveness of municipal communication, even through the postal service. It was very ironic, but it just made my day to know yeah. that someone was listening and so appreciative. That's great that we have fans. I love it. I love that we have fans. And we, I think, should probably encourage more folks to feel like they can reach out to us. They can email us directly at MMA Podcast at mimun.org or you can send us snail mail as well at 60 Community Drive in Augusta, Maine. However, if it's hate mail, we just ask that you uh, send it return receipt requested. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe certified as well. (laughs) Just show us that extra effort. That is really sweet that he took the time to mail a card. It was. So show appreciation. I don't know if Nick in Mechanic Falls is listening, but thank you. You made our week. Thanks, Nick. <laughs> you, however, had a week filled with greed and weed. I sure did. <laughs> greed and weed. <laughs> My week started off this week with MMA's bell. LD88, which is an act to provide qualifying municipalities a percentage of adult-use cannabis sales and excise tax revenues, sponsored by Representative Sean Paul Huss of Bath. It was very quiet public hearing. MMA was there to testify in favor. The bill sponsor was there. Representative Boyer uh, testified off the cuff against the measure. Which kind of surprised me. He feels that municipalities are just are looking for more money. Oh, I didn't realize we were banks. I yeah. thought uh, yeah. I thought municipalities were the entity governing the assessment of property tax and delivery of government services. So. That's what I thought too. So but I guess we, maybe the property just, taxpayers are looking for more money. Yeah, yeah, we're trying to make a buck on that cannabis. Yeah, and the old wacky tobacco. <laughs> Devil's lettuce. It's <laughs> probably one of my favorite phrases out of the legislative bulletin. I just had a good chuckle. <laughs> I think I chuckled when I wrote it too. <laughs> of course, in the same line of, of the weed topic, Friday I was in the Veteran and Legal Affairs Committee and they held work sessions for LD355, the Act to Refocus the Purpose and Duties of the Cannabis Advisory Commission, which was actually a concept draft that Senator Hickman had put in because he wanted to spark feedback from stakeholders and the public about the future of this commission and if it is if it should continue. There was 
testimony from Susan Meehan, and she is part of the Maine Cannabis Coalition and also part of Cannabis Council of Maine. And she provided testimony in support of it, of abolishing the commission, and she provided a two-part proposal. The first part was abolishing the current commission, and the second one was to form a new group that was more, in her words, favorably seated with stakeholders. So there's a lot of discussion about that, but if a new commission is going to be formed, they'd have to hold a public hearing on that. So Senator Hickman quickly brought it back to the first part as to whether it should be abolished or not. Do you have any idea what the statutory requirements of that commission are? Do you know what they're charged with? The commission is charged with reviewing the laws and the rules around adult use cannabis and the medical cannabis industries. They solicit public comment regarding law enforcement contacts with citizens, and they submit recommendations to the legislature to preserve the public health and safety of the citizens of the state and to standardize, coordinate, or integrate the adult use cannabis and medical cannabis laws into the state and report back to the legislature. And there was no report last year. And if I'm remembering correctly, there was limited report in the reports from the previous two years. So what basically Senator Hickman has an amendment that he's already drafted that he would like to abolish that commission and move forward with something different. Mm. So we will see if that will happen. I know we've submitted comments in the past with regard to law enforcement interaction with cannabis. Ironically, from that, the law enforcement side uh, and the, the pressures that they were feeling as a result of trying to navigate whether someone's a medical provider or medical card recipient, all of the complicated issues around enforcement and agency that they have. It feels like a lot of law enforcement have kind of stepped back from any kind of enforcement with cannabis. Is that is that a good assessment? I think that definitely came out during the summer listening sessions. With good reason, they're hammered with some real issues right now. They do know that the illicit market continues to grow and is a is a problem. However, they don't have a lot of prosecutorial backing to pursue charges, so it's a waste of time to even try to dive down into the complexities. And because there are two different regulatory regimes, there's um, a lot of confusion around that. It's still happening, but it has to be almost really large. And then they can deal with the the federal black market operation. They can pursue that more so than the guy who's selling weed on the side of the road, like his cherry tomatoes in the summer in a town that has not opted in. Mm, That's true. Yeah, I think once it becomes legal on a federal level, that will clear up a lot of these issues that people are having right now, like the proponents for people that want cannabis regulated like alcohol. Alcohol is legal on a federal level, mm-hmm. so you can't you can't really compare the two. Yeah, ironically, uh, the Office of Cannabis Policy has only has the ability to enforce their own licenses. Right. So if you don't have a license, there is no enforcement. Right. And you had some issues around uh, enforcement activity of the OCP. That's correct. Uh, LD365, an act to support compliance and establish graduated sanctions under the Maine Medical Use of Cannabis Act, sponsored by Ben Chipman of Cumberland County. Most people that came out to testify on that bill were in favor of it. 
And there was one one person who came out to testify who is the owner of West Paris Provisions Medical Dispensary. And she was talking about something that happened with her business where she lost her license and her employees were lost their jobs because a $5 pre-roll was sent uh, was sold, excuse me, to an undercover OCP officer or enforcement officer who was essentially doing a sting operation on her business and bought without a medical card, mm. bought the pre-roll without the medical card. So when that happened, she didn't hear about this incident until about nine months after the fact and she ended up losing her license for it interesting yes and she was claiming that there was an overreach because by performing sting operations around the state trying to entrap businesses <laughs> and for breaking one of those regulations and in this case it was selling that one five dollar pre-roll but the OCP did testify as well, and they had said that in their sting operations, they don't just go once, that they go several times to make sure that it's a pattern. So mm. it's kind of a he said, she said thing there. Yeah. So um, I'm hearing out of that is the lack of enforcement discretion is equally a problem for providers. That's what I'm hearing. Yeah. Or mechanism, feedback mechanisms. Though um, I'm going to play dumb. I don't know what the hell a pre-roll is. It's a, <laughs> they did explain it. It was a, it's a pre-roll. It's like a gram and a gram and a half of, of uh, cannabis. And it's already rolled into a joint for you. So you just like take it out of the packet and smoke it as is. You have uh. no prep work whatsoever. <laughs> oh, okay. And one of the, there was three people from that same business that testified. And one of them said, do you remember that $5 foot long song? <laughs> I want you to hear that in your head every time I say $5 pre-roll. $5 pre-roll. That's funny. So we would call them singles if you were buying cigarettes. Oh. You'd buy a single. Yeah. That's So it's kind of a single. It's a pre-roll. Interesting. (laughs) Even further that day, there was another cannabis bill, LD-555, an act to increase the number of mature plants allowed for home cultivation of cannabis. This one was kind of funny, too. Because we don't, you know, municipal officials don't care who grows marijuana in their, for their personal use. But they do care about how it affects their neighbor. And, mm. and Stank. Right, right. <laughs> it can get overwhelming. And if you have more than one person that's growing, as this bill suggests, it would increase the number of plants that you could grow up to six. Mm. If each person over the 20, age of 21 has six, six plants that they're growing... <laughs> I mean, it's a field, right? You can, it could quickly get out of control. You'll have no more lawn left. First of all. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, if that were to apply in my household, presuming that all my children were living at back at home and I'd probably, I might need to grow six plants if I had all children. children Yes. For all of them to come back home, I would need some sort of support for the grocery bill to be certain. (laughs) And I'm not quite sure I want them smoking marijuana because right. then they would just be hungrier. Right. Yeah. yeah. Wouldn't do wonders no. for grocery bill. No, it would not. So <laughs> a field of marijuana <laughs> would not be. So yeah, there was a um, MMA was the only person to testify against that bill. Everyone else is for it. So good stuff. How much is too much? Yeah, I don't know. 
That was the question, though. And thankfully, I did my research because I was able to provide a question, an answer to the question that they were asking with how much does a plant produce, which is if one healthy, mature plant when grown outdoors can provide a half pound or eight ounces on average grown correctly. I'm trying to think of the size of a half a pound of marijuana. It's a bit like hay and I'm just imagining a bale. A but. bale of hay. <laughs> well, bales I, bales, I think, weigh a lot more than one pound, right? I just think about, like, hops. It's the same family. Mm-hmm. And when you harvest it, I don't know. Yeah, but it's like leaves and flowers, right? It's like a pound of oregano. <laughs> How much oregano would you need to dump out for it to weigh oh. a pound? Like, that's a shit ton of oregano. It sure is. <laughs> and I wonder if that's dry or if it's fresh off the plant. Well, you can be our resident Cheech and Chong. <laughs> I'm glad that you're doing that. I, I, do, I did find the listening sessions really informative this summer, so I don't think there would be a harm in them continuing to do that. And as they're pulling together this commission, I think the public outreach and that public discussion is really going to continue to be important. So hopefully. Yeah, the Maine Public Health Association did testify against abolishing that commission because they think that they it has enough stakeholders that it can provide meaningful conversations from a variety of different perspectives. Mm. Yeah, that's and they saw value in that. That's super important as well. So you were in an alternate universe this week. Tell me about that. Yeah, it feels like it. It feels like it's so much as of late. I was reading through the list of bills and I think that as we're passing around that LD list and we're, we're going through and reading what the revisor's office is printing, I'm constantly finding myself going, Oh, baby! <laughs> Hello, Dexter! Hello, handsome boy! Oh! I have to go places and be like, have you seen my husband or my child? Are you waving? Ooh, we are so glad that you have your mom's disposition. Right. <laughs> Jesus. Oh. <laughs> All right. Give him to me. We're going to go eat lunch. Oh, Joy, thank you so much for bringing him in. <laughs> and sharing him. Thank you. Yes. I'm so sorry. You can come back and be a guest anytime, Dexter. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that was awesome. Oh, that was an awesome interruption. Yes. Love babies. Way better than phone calls. Oh, I love it. You were going to let us know what your alternate universe was like this week because oh, well, it was crazy. Alternate universes, I just got the podcast interrupted by a poop and baby. That was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Just sitting in these committees, it has been really interesting. I think I talked about it last week, though, but there were a number of bills that that came up that just seem like they're disconnected from what is the very loud and obvious problems facing municipalities. And I'm not seeing a lot of legislation that's actually going to address any of those pressures. Like, 
the mountains of septic waste that need some place to go, or the hundreds of homeless individuals that are priced out of rentals, which according to Maine Housing is only going to get worse because they don't even have anyone to build or remodel. So as anyone who has tried to get any sort of home projects done or contracted out will understand. A couple of my friends are three years, they recorded three years out to be able to do simple projects. So we definitely need more workforce. Yeah. I heard today that in a meeting with Senator Angus King, he disclosed that there are 11, that there are 11 million vacancies nationwide and only 5 million people who are out of work. So even if all of those people, which is probably his, at historically low, even if all those people were employed, there would still be 6 million vacancies that there is nobody to fill. That's interesting. Mm. Uh, we have an open position here, state and federal relations. Yes, we do. But it's going to take a special person. Wow. Yeah, so what I'm hoping for is an alternate universe in which next week when we go to the legislature, we encounter a legislature that listens and treats municipal government as though they are partners, not special interest groups, partners in the deliverance of governance. On Monday, we have another of MMA's platform bills, LD-673, an act to direct the Maine Criminal Justice Academy to develop a non-residential law enforcement training program, which is sponsored by Representative Mike LaJoy of Lewiston. It's going to have its public hearing uh, at 10 a.m. in the Criminal Justice and Public Safety Committee. And the intent here was to develop a two-track training process that uh, a lot of municipal officials in particular, but also police departments, need in order to remove some barriers to recruitment. There are a lot of barriers to recruiting law enforcement professionals at this point in time, and probably never a more intentional need to have mature individuals in those roles, folks with life experience and emotional intelligence. And yet that is the group of people that are the hardest to get or attract to law enforcement for the simple fact that they have to go to an 18-week residential academy, which if you're 20 is great. It's like going away to college. If you are 30, it's hard because you now have life responsibilities, often your carers, often your kids. You have kids like what we just experienced here that uh, need care and it's easier to get daycare than it is residential care for your children if you're the primary caregiver. And those folks are still able to be police officers. There's nothing about their lives that would preclude them. In fact, it probably would enhance them Mm. to be able to not only care about the communities that they're in, but have a vested stake in them. They're exactly the people that we want to attract, and yet we don't have any way of training them that isn't an enormous burden and requires them to leave their families for 18 weeks. So we're hoping that we can back what the commissioner had already proposed uh, to the Criminal Justice and Public Safety Committee in his budget was additional staff with at the academy, which has fewer people on staff now than it did 20 years ago, and arguably a much higher level of uh, educational requirements. It was 12 weeks at that point in time. They have fewer fewer people on staff now. So the Criminal Justice and Public Safety Committee gave him some pushback on that. They didn't want to add to those numbers. Yet it's also the same body that 
annually pushes more and more training responsibilities onto law enforcement. So it's a bit of a disconnect for me that you want more, but you don't want to equip, tool, or pay for more. So I think probably more poignantly, I looked at the numbers last year of training provided by municipal or county and state agencies, individuals who are certified training officers and did back of the envelope calculation of if you took the average salary for a police officer in Maine and applied it to that number, it's already almost a half a million that they provide through municipal payroll or municipal assessment in the terms of in case of folks that go to the county, but largely it's municipal officers that are providing this. Over half a million dollars in payroll subsidy that they are providing in order for the academy to deliver its training. That's not going to get any easier if we can't fill those roles. That's not going to get any easier or cheaper if we lose all of those certified officers because they are getting burnt out. I have a question for you. If they they develop a non-residential program, would those officers be less qualified because they did not go through no. A residential program? No, not at all. And we're asking the academy to direct the curriculum for that. It could potentially even be longer than 18 weeks. Mm-hmm. Just because you spend the night there doesn't necessarily mean there's a lot of uh, training that's going on all night. There are several, you know, in- night type classes. But beyond that, you know, study groups that you're interacting with other individuals, that all happens in the college setting. It all happens in the classroom setting. You connect. And some of, I would argue, most progressive police chiefs actually went through the residential academy that they held in an emergency way before because in statute they have to be trained within a year in order to once you hire them, they need to be, you have a year to get them trained. The arguments that I've heard for not doing the residential academy now are that there's no one on the waiting list. Our argument is it's not about the waiting list at this point in time. It's about flexibility to attract the right candidates, the people that live in our communities, the people that are willing and desire to do this and Mm -hmm. see that as a barrier. So having all the tools doesn't take away from any of the tools just allows you flexibility. Right. And if they're developing it, then it then should be the exact standard. Yeah. yeah. And the standards are the standards. Mm-hmm. That doesn't change. 50% of the states in the U.S. have non-residential academies and some of the major ones, Los Angeles, Las Vegas. And if you even move next door in New Hampshire, they don't have a residential academy. And they offer a full-time one where you go for, you know, every day like you would a normal job and come home at night. And they also offer a part-time one. So you can hold another position and get your certification over a larger period of time. So you can juggle both and then come out. Uh, Sounds like a good step into getting, you know, recruitment into this profession. I think it addresses one key barrier. And I think um, we'll probably highlight some of that testimony that comes through next week. But there were amazing humans that uh, live in those communities that municipal officials have heard about and identified and so police chiefs and they've also struggled to get some of their own folks if you have multiple openings and you provide a cadre you get a preference to that so you're providing that labor you have a bunch of openings and you have people that can't work Mm. until they are certified 
that creates a burden. And yes, it's if you have 70 officers and you have seven openings, that feels like a lot and you need to get those seven done within a year. And if you're a seven officer agency and you have one opening, it's the same proportional burden and they're both important to have. So again, why not have all the options out there? Mm. Another layer. Another layer. But more importantly, they need the resources to do it. The academy needs the resources to do it. The academy needs the resources to develop the curriculum. But it's been done before. It's done everywhere else. They're doing a review right now. And that review is not going to come back and say 18 weeks is enough. It's going to come back and say, we need 27. Did we talk about uh, LD750 at all? An act to eliminate the limits on candidates' speech at the polls? No, we did not. Ah, well, that was something that I was involved with this week as well. Aside from the bill sponsor, the only support for this bill came from Senator Brakey of Androscoggin County. He got up and spoke off the cuff about just reminding people about when they were campaigning and they were on the ballots and how when you went to the elect to the polls that when people would come and you'd say hi how are you thanks for coming and they would ask you know why is your name on the ballot and you'd have to say and have an awkward conversation well I can't tell you that by law but if you go over there and look at the sample ballot you'll see the names that are on there and just really (laughs) drove home the point that it was awkward and Cringy conversations could happen. and But all the testimony against that didn't quite feel the same way. They felt that it would open up the door for, it just opens the door for violence to occur when you, when you start talking politics at the polls. And honestly, by the time people get to the polls, they've already made up their decision of who they're going to vote for. So there's really no reason that they need to be there to welcome anyone to the polls mm. in order to maybe get a last-minute vote. It's one of the uh, ODEAR standards for election monitoring, but that's something you pay attention to. Most places actually have a, what they call a silent period mm-hmm. immediately before. Yeah. So not only do they not allow the candidates to be around the polls, they also stop all of the TV advertisements one day in advance of that. So it's like... (sighs) That would be nice. Well, you know how we get so frustrated by those ads every time you turn on like a YouTube video and you're seeing ads, you're like, oh my God, the ads, the ads, the ads. I can't wait until the election's over so I stop seeing the ads. (laughs) Yeah. Do the ads really bring in votes? That is a political science research project in the making. Let's kick that off to Garrett. Quiet periods or silent periods before elections is not unusual. It's usually promoted. Mm. I like that idea. Mm. Mm -hmm. There's so much hype up until the election. And Maine does a really, I've heard over and over again that Maine does a really good job administering their elections. And it just seems like let them do their jobs and don't bring any kind of discontent that could come in. Don't bring it in from the outside. Just let let our let the sanctity of the polls lie. Yeah, let people exercise their constitutional right in peace. Let's go get lunch. So, on that note, it's going to be a hectic week next week. I don't know that I'll get to see you, but I'll try to come visit you in VLA when I'm across yeah. the hall in either uh, judiciary or criminal justice. I'll be but... there all day. Well, Becky, have an amazing weekend writing testimony. Yes, uh, I'll be there with you in solidarity. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
we will get through it. Yeah. I'm going to send my boys out to play in the snow. So leave me alone so I can write. <sighs> there we are, then. There we are, then. See you later, folks. See you later. Bye. Bye.